Grace and peace, Waterstone Community Church. We believe that Jesus is the most amazing, most holy and beautiful person who has ever lived. And we believe that he's very active in our world even now as we speak. And one of the ways we see that is by the start and, and planting of new churches all around the world, but even here in our own communities. And we're so excited that next week, Danielle Reeves, uh, the lead pastor of Resilience Church, is going to be with us. It's our, our partnership church plant that we are helping uh, Danielle launch. And next week, she's going to preach on the biblical basis of church planning and then give us a great update on resilience and even more begin to tell you every person at Waterstone how you can play a part in this church plant. So we're excited about that next week. Come and hear about Resilience Church. Also before we look at God's word uh, I just want to share something from my heart uh, with our church uh, and I, I've written it so that I can capture the words uh, this has been a bruising week. COVID-19 has now killed more than 100,000 people in the United States alone. A terrible milestone. How do we mourn the deaths of over 100,000 human beings, image bearers, people with stories and accomplishments, parents and children and lovers and friends, people with pain and loss, joy and hope, people with promises kept, yet so much unfinished. How can we together grieve life that has been cut short? Where is the mourner's bench? For you, Waterstone, will you grieve this week in your small group, with your neighbors, with friends? How will you grieve? I invite you, I call on the church to sit on the mourner's bench this week. And then, there's the murder, the murder of George Floyd, our Christian brother. Here is yet another chapter in the long, ugly story of hate and systemic injustice against black men and black women in America. Cities are on fire, and I'm asking, could it be the judgment of God? With Peter, the apostle, we confess let the sifting begin with us, the church. Will we use our Christian imaginations to envision practicing what Jesus calls the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faith? Will we who have pledged highest allegiance to King Jesus call on the revolutionary power of the Holy Spirit within us to be moved by love to thwart this evil at work in our world. What will you do to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let us lament with the words of the prophet Habakkuk. How long, Lord, must we call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make us look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before us. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk 1. And so we pray. Remember, Lord, what happened to Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. 
Look and see the disgraceful way their being was treated. Our inheritance of the image of God in every human being has been denied and stolen by others. The family of Ahmad and Brianna and George has lost their loved one. A mother once again grieves her dead child. Our ancestors sinned the great sin of instituting slavery. They are no more, but we bear their shame. George Floyd is down on the street, his body crying out for air, his voice calling out for his mother. Black women have been violated throughout our nation's history, and Breonna Taylor gunned down in her own home. Noble black men have been hung, lynched, and gunned down. Elders and spokesmen are shown no respect. Trust in our ultimate triumph has diminished. Our triumphant proclamation of victory has turned to a funeral dirge. Our sense of exceptionalism has been exposed. We, too, are Babylon. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Here are our tears, Lord. Here is our anger. What would you have us do, Lord? Restore us to yourself that we may serve. Renew us that we may find a new way forward. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Amen. A call to pray and fasting. Now we do want to turn to God's Word. And we begin looking at beautiful, holy Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that three days after Jesus took the baptism in the Jordan, completely identifying with sinners, three days after his baptism, he attended a wedding. Now, weddings in Jesus' day were a big affair. The whole village was expected to attend. I mean, the rabbis taught that if God himself officiated the first wedding of Adam and Eve, the least we could do is attend a wedding in our village. And there was plenty of food. In fact, everyone expected leftovers. And so you can imagine it was a bit of a village crisis when this particular wedding ran out of wine. So there's Jesus, 30 years old and unmarried which was in his married culture a very suspect thing, especially for a rabbi. Because again, the rabbis like to remark that the first commandment in Scripture is not love God or don't chase idols. The first commandment is to be fruitful and multiply. And every rabbi did and was expected to. And here's single Jesus at a wedding. I wonder how he felt 
Do you ever think of Jesus not only being a dark-skinned Jewish Middle Eastern man, but also a single man? Do you ever reflect on that? How that must have felt the Scripture is silent about whether Jesus longed to be married, whether he had attraction to any particular woman. We don't know. What we do know is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us, that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, apart from having a sin nature. So any picture, I think, of Jesus that has him monkishly floating above any kind of desire or hormones is not an honest picture. Uh, I think Jesus felt uncomfortable at a wedding, (laughs) especially so when his mother comes up to him and says, "Uh, son, uh, I know who you are. Can you help the host out and deal with the wine issue? Jesus' response is initially, woman, uh, why do you involve me in this? Uh, My hour has not yet come. But uh, with his mother staring at him, I think she was going to bring the hour, and it came. And Jesus made a decision. I mean, in that moment of pondering, Jesus knows that as he does this miracle and turns water into wine, that from now on, paparazzi kind of crowds will follow him everywhere, wanting to see more and more miracles. And he knows that now every time he speaks and talks about what's behind these miracles and claiming who he really is, that his religious leaders are going to be deeply offended. And so when Jesus decides to perform this miracle at a wedding, the clock begins to tick to the cross. And here's Jesus, an unmarried man, For now. For now. Welcome to Love This Book. Uh, We are preaching from Genesis to Revelation, and today is the last in a series on the wisdom books in the First Testament. God gave us the wisdom books to know how to operate in His universe. His moral character is ingrained into the reality that we live in, and so the wisdom books are designed to help us flourish in life and to help us or at least resist a path of least resistance. And what a wise person knows is that we're launched into life through a family. And so the wisdom books actually talk a lot about family. And today we're going to talk about family, specifically the launching pad of every family, and that is marriage. We want to see how a wise person looks at marriage, that is through the eyes of God. Now, The first word I want to say about it is actually to those in our church and those who are listening who are unmarried, widowed, divorced, never married. First word is for you. Waterstone is a church that sits in the hearts of the suburbs of Denver, this town called Littleton, a very married community. We estimate that one-third of our congregation is single, but it seems like we program heavily towards the two-thirds. What we want to say to those of you who are unmarried is thank you for your courage and your perseverance to attend a church where often the loneliness you feel here at this church is because of our neglect. We honor you. But we also want you to know that you've had influence. You, whether you've noticed or not, and you you may not know this, that we've begun to do small groups the last few years very differently. We no longer have like small groups for married people. Our goal is to integrate marrieds and singles into every small group. 
especially in our 20s and 30s, where everyone in that group is single and married. Friendship transcends it all because in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, and there is no married or single. We are in Christ. I'll never forget years ago my best friend Kevin. He went through a painful divorce and we were spending a lot of time together. At the end of a hike, he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, Larry, you should be glad that I'm in your life. And I said, of course, Kev, you're my best friend. And he said, no, you should be glad that I, a single man, am in your life to remind you that there's more to life than being married. That is the wisdom of the Proverbs. The Proverbs just has a lot more fun saying it. Here's how the Proverbs puts it. Proverbs chapter 27. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping on a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. I heard a modern translation once say, like trying to hold onto a bowling ball that's been coated in Vaseline. There's a picture The point is that marriage is hard, and it's especially hard (laughs) in a pandemic, right? I read in the New York Times, I think it was two weeks ago, that they did a poll of a thousand couples around New York City that had children under the age of 12, and they were homeschooling, as every family uh, with kids was homeschooling during the pandemic. 49% of the husbands surveyed said that they are doing the bulk of the schoolwork with the kids. 3% of the wives agreed. (laughs) There's the problem right there. Or uh, Jan, uh, my bride, was sent a video from one of her co-workers at her school. And uh, it's it's a woman, and it's very poor quality, setting it up. It's a woman hiding in the closet in the dark with a flashlight under her face, hiding from her husband. And you'll get a glimpse of marriage in a pandemic. Take a look. California, day 12 being quarantined with my loved ones. At first it was okay. It was like a really nice long weekend. And then madness. It's too much togetherness. This entire experience have made me very much aware that I want a man in my life, just not in my house. Hook up my DVD player and my, my printer, maybe help me flip the mattress now and then and then get out. Yesterday, the man asked me where we keep the spoons. The spoons, for God's sake, we've been married 31 years. The spoons are kept where they always are kept, in the silverware drawer. He recently found all of the old cassettes of music that he used to listen to when he was in high school and thought it would be fun if we just listened to those songs yesterday. There's only so much of the band America a person can listen to. And that stupid song, riding through the desert on a horse with no name. It's not deep, it's stupid. I mean, name your horse for crying out loud. Prickly Pete's a good name. Snoopy. Just name it and be done with it. I'm hiding in here because I don't think he can find me in here. I mean, the man can't find the spoons. Chances are he's not going to look in the closet for his wife. And if he does, I'm going to have to watch all five of the Planet of the Ape movies. He thought that would be a good time for us this evening. All the horror. 
I've been through the desert on a horse with no la 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 la. Marriage. In the Proverbs, in the wisdom books, is one word which leads to two words, which leads to three words. Marriage in a word is covenant. Covenant. Listen to the Proverbs. Chapter 2. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. The way God looks at marriage is as a covenant. Now, the word covenant is a picturesque Hebrew word. It's the word bereath, and it literally means cutting. And the picture is throughout the Scripture, but it's in places like Genesis 15, where God is going to make covenant and renew covenant again with Abraham about how he's going to, from his uh, seed, he and Sarah, from their marriage, it's going to launch a whole nation which will be God's light to the world of nations and call them to himself. But God makes this promise, and, and in order to, uh, to uh, affirm the promise, God tells Abraham, take three large animals, a ram, a goat, and a cow, cut them in half, and then don't cut the birds in half, but put two birds on either side, and then we're going to walk through those. But the text is clear that Abraham falls asleep. So only God walks through uh, between these animal halves to say that the power of a covenant is, I will keep my word at the pain of death. I will be willing to shed blood to keep this promise. That's what covenant means. And in this case, God, because we couldn't keep our end of the deal and couldn't keep promise, he himself shed his own blood in his son for our failure. But that's the idea of covenant. A, a, a woman and a man stand in a backyard or in a church and they make vows and they say that these vows are going to power our future and we're going to gain the character to keep our word. And it starts now when we're young and soothing and smooth and sexy and smell like Chanel Coco or all the way until we're old and wrinkled and noisy and smell like Ben Gay. We are going to keep our vows. This is my solemn vow. That's a covenant. And you know, covenant is the entire story of Scripture. The entire frame of the story is covenant from God Himself officiating the wedding of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, uh, all the way, the high point of creation, by the way, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation when we see the marriage feast, when the church. Uh, and the bride of Christ and, and Jesus, the, their relationship is, is uh, climactic, consummated. And there we see it's the high point of the redemption story is Jesus and the bride being married. Now, it's also interesting just to note the first and last words of the Scripture. It's the same thing. The first human words spoken in the Bible are those of the bridegroom, Adam, saying, "'At last, bone of my bone.'" flesh of my flesh. And the last word, human words we hear at the end of Revelation is the bride saying, uh, the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus, come. You see, covenant promise frames everything. So what is covenant? Covenant is two words. 
Covenant is leave and cleave. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, we, we read that uh, God says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There the idea is, is that it's not just the joining of two words, but it's rather the abandonment of two worlds at, to form with God's creative power a new world. And that's why marriage, if you are a married person, has to become the vortex of your life. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul, talking about marriage, says that when you're married, husband, you need to love your wife as your own body, it says. In other words, if, you, uh, if you're going to do anything in life, you've got to take care of your health. If you love work and your health, but you love work more, you're going to lose both your work and your health, your health and your work. In the same way, marriage affects everything in life. And if you don't take care of it, you will hurt everything in your life. Marriage has to become the center. You leave everything else, marriage becomes the vortex of your life. So you leave and you cleave. The idea of cleave is first a, a vow. It's with the head. It's, it's, it's like I sit down with couples who want to get married and I say, okay, let's sit down and let's make a list of everything bad that's going to happen to you. It's going to be in your vow. Sickness and health. Richer for poor. You sit there and you decide, okay, you anticipate all these circumstances. I'm going to stay committed. The vow is my word and I will develop the character to stand behind those vows. That's my job. A vow is a mind made up. Some days, a vow is the only thing that will keep you married. It's that hard. But your mind is made up before God. And so what happens is, your mind made up, you choose. That's what love is. Love is not romance. That's a part of it. Love is not sex. That's a part of it. Love is not love at its core, Christian love, is commitment. It's choice. It's saying what the Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Actually, the, 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 the uh, rejoice is an imperative. It's a command. You are commanded in your marriage to rejoice in your spouse. So how do you command joy? How do you command love? Well, that's where we've got it turned around because we think so often that joy and love are feelings. Feelings come out of joy and love, but at its heart, love is a choice. It's choosing by the hour to love your spouse. That's what love is. And what's amazing in how that works is as you make that choice and choose your spouse hour after hour after hour, feelings follow. Feelings follow behavior. Uh, C.S. Lewis put this so clearly in Mere Christianity. Though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. So, 
Marriage is a word, the wisdom literature tells us. It's the word covenant. And that word covenant is two words, leaving and cleaving. And there's one more thing I want to say about this idea of leaving and cleaving. Uh, you know, abandoning two worlds to make one new world that's, that's secured by vows and chosen by love. It's this, sometimes the greatest enemy to your married uh, life are already under your, your roof. Uh, you know, it's the old thing, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The greatest enemy to your marriage, you parents, especially with young children, is those cute little narcissistic machines that we call children. <laughs> I want to remind you that in the Garden of Eden, the first relationship was not parent and child. The first relationship was husband and wife, and that relationship is the priority. You need to focus the most in your family, on your married relationship. And you know what's hard about that? What's really hard about that is, especially when your children are young, you often find yourself getting more emotional nourishment from your children than your spouse. But if you continue to pull that out to the neglect of your marriage, you will end up crushing not only your child, but ruining your marriage. And so, you choose your spouse and make sure your marriage stays strong. In Jesus, that's in our world where children are worshipped. In Jesus' world, the parents were worshipped. And the same holds true for them. I always found it interesting that Jesus didn't say, love your parents in the, in the Ten Commandments. He said, honor your parents. If you turn to your parents again and again for emotional nourishment, you are going to ruin your marriage. Your parents are not the primary source of your emotional nourishment. Your spouse is. And if you try to bring your parents and keep bringing them into everything within your marriage, I mean, conflict resolution is hard enough with two people, not to mention three or four. It becomes impossible, not to mention the betrayal of trust if you are sharing intimate details about your marriage with your parents. So on guard, on guard, married parents at Waterstone. Beware of your children. Beware of your parents. Focus on your marriage first. So marriage is a word, covenant, the promise that powers the future. And it's in leaving and cleaving, creating a new thing that God makes. And then that leads to three words. Leave, cleave is two that lead to three. Marriage is important. When we see marriage from God's perspective, we see it's important for two reasons. First, marriage is God's spiritual discipline for teaching anyone who's married how to love. It's a laboratory of love. I mean, marriage will teach you forgiveness it will teach you an other-centered existence. It will teach you burden-bearing. Marriage is how we learned to live an other-centered life. Marriage unveils the shadow parts of your soul uh, and reminds you uh, that our natural instinct is to take care of ourselves first. Marriage challenges that minute by minute. So, we learn growth. And it also, I think, understanding marriage as growth, growth before it's comfort, growth before it's joy, marriage is primarily growth and how we grow. By the way, I don't think anyone captures that better in our current culture than country music. <laughs> you know, country music, some of my favorite titles, Dina Carter, did I shave my legs for this? Or uh, Gary Stewart, she's acting single, I'm drinking doubles. Uh, or my favorite, personally, uh, Loretta Lynn in Conway Twitty, where I grew up in central Pennsylvania. That was, man, top 40 stuff. You're the reason our kids are ugly. Country music at least gets the pain in marriage right. So um, 
it's work, it's growth. And, uh, but what it does is depressurizes the marriage, right? It's, it says that it doesn't matter if your marriage is hard. That's, I mean, you know your marriage is working when it feels like a slow way to be crucified. That's the growth, becoming more like Jesus. And it takes the pressure off the marriage for this whole thing. Well, did I marry the right person? I mean, we're having conflict. Here's your answer. Are you asking that today in your marriage, whether you've been married one year or 50 years? Did you marry the right person? Here's your answer. Yes, you married the right person. Yes. Stanley Hauervas at Duke University describes it this way. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It feels to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We, ne- we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Marriage is growth, and it teaches us how to love. And the second thing from God's point of view that marriage is and why it's important is that marriage is gospel. Marriage displays the kind of love that God shows to us, Jesus seeing us lost, seeing us struggle. He comes to us. He engages relationship with us. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died, lays down his life in sacrificial love to forgive our sins and connect us to his family. That's the kind of love that's demonstrated in a marriage. You see, your marriage is far bigger than you and your spouse. Far bigger. Your marriage is a walking kingdom display of the love of God, which is why you have to take care of it, which is why you have to prioritize it, which is why you have to struggle with it and get help for it. Because it's a living, walking demonstration of the way that God loves us. So you're here today. You're in a hard marriage. I want to say this without being trite, but I do want to say this, that Jesus knows. Jesus knows. I mean, he knows what it's like to be in a hard relationship. He came for us. I mean, he entered the marriage from hell with us. He knows what it's like to be utterly rejected, utterly ignored. In your marriage, unless there's abuse and unless there's adultery and biblical grounds for divorce, you need to stay in there and keep working at your marriage. You need to take care of it. You, you need to uh, have Jesus demote your spouse from being the center of your life. If you're holding the spouse at the center of your life and anything happens to your spouse, especially if it's a good spouse, you're going to be so afraid that you won't be strong if they come down sick or struggling. If you're so demanding that your spouse meet your needs and give you what you want, you're going to be so angry when you don't get it that that's going to leak into every other part of your life. So Jesus needs to demote your spouse from the center of your life. The only one who can fill the gaping needs of your heart and soul is Jesus Christ, and you are pledged to him until that great marriage feast at the end of time. That's where you get your soul sustenance. If you long to be married, 
If you long to be married, the same thing is true. You need to have Jesus demote your future spouse out of the center of your life and keep holding on like Jesus that the ultimate marriage that's the, and the only marriage that's going to satisfy the needs of your heart are that end of time marriage when we are the bride of Christ at the marriage feast of the land. That's the only relationship that will meet the needs of your heart. There's Jesus again. In John chapter 4, he comes up at high noon to a woman at the well, and she's drawing water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And uh, Jesus says, how do the blue I can give you living water? And the woman, not totally understanding what living water is, says, oh, sure, I would love living water. Then I wouldn't have to come back to this well anymore. And Jesus says, well, why don't you go get your husband and bring him here, and I'll tell you both at once. And Jesus says, well, I'm not married. And Jesus says, you've spoken right. You're not married. You've been married five times, but the guy you're living with now you're not married to. And the woman is shocked. She's blown away. But she wants that living water. She's been thirsting for love everywhere else by being married, by being single, by cohabitating. She's been looking for that relationship to satisfy her soul everywhere else. And she finds it when Jesus, the unmarried one, comes to her. It says, I can give you water, living water, and you will never thirst again. I can forgive your sins, and I can connect you to my family, to my Father, and you will never thirst again. Marriage is the word covenant, the way that God loves us. Marriage is two words, which mean leave and cleave to create a new thing with your marriage. And that makes it important because it's the purpose of, for growth, and for gospel in your life. Now, we come to the communion table, and uh, two of our staff members, Luke and Jansen Matheson, who've just had an amazing journey these last three years that they've been on our staff, they're going to come now and lead us to the table. And I just want to say this as they come. Bring your disappointments, your sins, your failures, because while we were enemies, Jesus died up for us to forgive us. And bring your broken dreams and your broken hearts that uh, marriage has caused or not being married has caused. Bring those to this table as well. Because as Paul says, I reckon that these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us as the children of God. So as we come, Hear Luke and Jansen's story of their marriage, how they've demonstrated the growth of, and the gospel, and then let's celebrate our marriage to Jesus Christ. Amen.